It's my joy and privilege and, and happy burden to bring God's word to you this evening. It's indeed a, a sobering text that we'll be studying together tonight. Um, but in his kindness, God gives men an acute awareness of their inadequacy to, de- to deliver his word. At the same time, he gives them grace and encouragement by the Spirit, whom he promised to send, to teach us and remind us all that Christ has taught us. And it's this simultaneous inadequacy and grace that I feel now in bringing this message to you today. Um, Therefore, before we open God's word, let's pray for his spirit to attend us. Let's pray. Good and gracious Father, thank you for giving us your word. We pray that by your spirit, you will conform us to the image of your son. And so make us holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, a number of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with my coworker during some downtime at the office. I consider him a friend, and I'm thankful to the Lord for giving uh, opportunities for me to talk with, uh, with my coworkers and my colleagues about the gospel at work. And in this one specific conversation, we briefly talked about sin. We talked about how men sin against God by violating his law. In talking about this subject, my coworker posed an honest question to me. He asked, of the many laws and commands that are given in the Bible, why is it today that Christians observe some and not others? And to point the, a specific example out, uh, he, he went to a specific part of the Bible. Uh, Guess which part he went to? He went to Leviticus 11. He went to the food laws. And uh, that's actually where our text happens to be tonight. So uh, he asked me, why do Christians say people need to abide by laws of um, sexual ethic like Leviticus 18.22, but at the same time, they don't place that same emphasis on, um, on the food laws. Uh, what to eat and what not to drink, what's clean and unclean, club and hoof, stuff like that. Um, So in my head, I thought it was a completely valid question and a good one at that. So we talked about it for a little bit um, until I had to leave for the day. And to be honest, I didn't think much of the conversation afterwards. So my friend and I had that conversation on December 20th. And then December 31st, uh, Pastor Mike asked me to preach on Leviticus 11.44. So uh, I had no idea that that conversation was going to be so closely related to what we'd be uh, uh, looking at tonight. and if you're sitting in the pew, thinking about that same question that my coworker had, um, don't worry, we'll be addressing that question. We'll be addressing that question with the bigger question presented to us in our sermon text tonight. Namely, how holy must we be to stand before the holy God? So please uh, turn with me now to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. The verse should be, pound, uh, it should be found on page 90 if you're using the pew Bibles that are provided. Uh, So listen now as I read Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. So before we unpack this one verse, let's take a look at its place in the scriptures. 
Leviticus is the third book of the Old Testament. It's a part of the Pentateuch, the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible. They're written by Moses, and they contained um, laws, many laws about how the people of God were to conduct themselves as being God's chosen people. So one commentator noted that Leviticus, in particular, was used as the first book that Jewish children uh, studied in the synagogue. Since it was the first book that was taught, it shows how important holiness was in the, in the identity of the Israelites. But what exactly does it mean to be holy? The original Hebrew word that was used in this verse is the word kadosh. Um, and when that's translated into English, it means sacred or set apart. So essentially, when we're reading Leviticus 11.44, in, th in this manner, we can see that God is commanding his people to be sacred or set apart, as God himself is set apart. We see this set-apartness at the very beginning of the Bible in creation, when the Lord God created man. There's actually a catechism question that asks, how did God create man? Uh, and the answer is, God created man, male and female, after his own image, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So God created man with a capacity for holiness and had mandated from the beginning that the human race was to reflect his holiness to all the rest of creation. Mankind was set apart and they were set apart to be his image bearers and to show um, his, God's holiness to the rest of creation. Um, they were to exercise dominion over creation and thus show God's holiness. But did man continue in this mandate? Um, sadly, no. The distinctive nature of humanity as God's representatives in this world was tainted. Instead of obeying God and trusting their creator, Adam and Eve listened to and believed the lie of a creature. Our first parents believed the lie of the serpent and in so doing sin entered the world. So with Adam as our federal head, all of humanity has failed in being holy. Uh, we've failed in being set apart to display God's glory in creation. Thus, Adam and, the, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden for sinning against God, and creation was in turn sub subjected to a curse. But in the midst of this plight, God promised to redeem a chosen people to display his glory. In the Old Testament, the law was given to Israel to show God's promise in part. So what about the food laws of Leviticus 11? Uh, I, to I told you we would get back to them, right? So, so now at this point, you may be asking yourself, how does this command about food laws apply to us today if we're not to observe the same food laws as the ancient Israelites did? And I actually had similar thoughts when I was um, eating some pizza rolls one night, um, doing sermon prep for this sermon. Um, excuse me. They were... Uh, they were the pepperoni variety, so obviously not a kosher snack. Um, let's explore this briefly. In ancient Israel, the laws that God gave the Jewish people were meant to show Israel's distinction from the other nations. The, the food laws in particular were specific distinction that showed up in everyday life. You could, you could tell who was a Jew and who was a Gentile by what they ate. 
Um, in fact, the Jewish dietary restrictions outlined in Leviticus 11 were initially observed at the start of the early church because those who first came to believe in Jesus were Jewish. But by Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision. We don't need to turn there, but let me briefly describe it. In, in Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision in which he saw all sorts of animals coming down from heaven, and he was commanded by God to kill and eat the animals. When Peter responded to God with reluctance about eating things that were unclean, the Lord responded to him by saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now the Greek words used here for cleanliness and commonness, uh, I think it's katharizo and koinos. Those words have the same connotation to being holy, kadosh, in the, Levit- in the Levitical sense. Um, so at first, Peter didn't understand the vision. He, uh, he was reluctant um, to, to, uh, to eat all that stuff. But, but after obeying the Lord and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and his household, and after seeing them baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was revealed in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, that to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So no longer only Jews who are in the promise of redemption from the Old Covenant, God is now redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Um, this is the mystery that was revealed to us. So this mystery is, the, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's Ephesians 3.6. So now there is no longer any distinction between Jews and Gentiles uh, to be shown through adherence to ceremonial laws like like, uh, dietary restrictions. Um, So although in the church today we're no longer bound by those laws, God's law, namely the moral law, still stands as a glaring reminder of God's holiness and man's sinful condition. It's actually stated in the, in the scriptures that even unbelievers show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's uh, Romans 2.15. So the law is a mirror of God's perfect righteousness, and it shows that what is required of man is to be perfectly holy. It, he, man is required to be as holy as God is holy. So when we do look into that mirror, what we find is that we are woefully unholy. If the law is a reflection of God's holiness, and if the law accuses us, which it does, how can sinful man stand before a holy God? Even if you think you're a good person, just take a look at the Ten Commandments. Perhaps you will say to yourself, well, I've never killed anyone, so I'm okay. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. Perhaps you might say to yourself, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never broken that commandment. Um, But Jesus tells us in that same chapter, if you've looked lustfully at anyone, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You see, friends, God does not, he does not look at just the outward acts of man. He sees our hearts. And what is in our hearts is sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 through 10. And what should God give to those who have not walked according to his ways? What must a holy God do to those who do not obey the law that he has given? Let's take a look at just a couple quick verses. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Isaiah 3.11. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 11, verse 6. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 11, verse 3. The scriptures are clear. God will not let the guilty go unpunished. This may be unsettling to some, but the same God that made the promises of redemption and judgment in the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of God's attributes is his immutability. God does not change, and thus his law does not change, nor do the consequences of failing to obey the law that he has given. Friends, if you're understanding this like I am, uh, you and I are lawbreakers. We have not obeyed God's law, and we deserve God's judgment for sinning against him. But the same immutable God who will not clear the guilty is the same God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. How can this possibly be? How can a holy God call unholy people to be holy? Well, this is the good news for lawbreakers like you and me. At the right time, in condescending love, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live under the law so that he might fulfill it. Jesus never disobeyed God. He never broke his law. He always, at all times, perfectly loved the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and he never sinned. There was no fault to be found in him. He lived as we were called to live. He did not fail like Adam in the garden. He obeyed the command to be holy as God is holy. But Jesus was crucified along criminals. And in his suffering and death, he was made a propitiation for sin. On the cross, Jesus atoned for all the sins of those who would place their faith and trust in him. On the cross, Jesus received the full and just punishment our sins deserved. And he died having satisfied the full wrath of God that was due to wicked sinners like us. But Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again. Jesus emerged from the tomb. And now he lives forever to make intercession for those who are trusting him by faith. He has given an unrighteous people his very own righteousness. Um, I think the Prince of Preachers may have put it best. This is what C.H. Virgin says. You stand before God 
as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as he were you. He in your stead, you in his stead. Substitution, that is the word. Christ, the substitute for sinners. Christ, standing for men and bearing the thunderbolts of divine opposition to all sin. He being made sin for us who knew no sin. Man, standing in Christ's place, receiving the sunlight of divine favor instead of Christ. So if you are in Christ, you are indeed accepted by God. Because by faith you have been given an alien righteousness. You've been given the very righteousness of Jesus. And so to answer that main question that we asked at the beginning of, uh, of this sermon, how holy must we be to stand before the holy God? Well, the, the answer is we need to be perfectly holy. <laughs> as God is perfectly holy. And this answer shows us that the question is not, it's not a merit-based issue, but it's actually an identity-based issue. So just as God called Israel to be holy, he calls us to be holy. Um, If you'll remember from uh, the morning sermon this Sunday and last Sunday, we're called to be God's elect exiles and we're, we're meant to live as God's elect exiles. So we're, we're called to be holy just like Israel was. Um, but it's, a, it's not a holiness that's based on works. It's a holiness that is based upon, it's based fully upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In his life, Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5.17. In Christ's death, we know that Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, Romans 6, 6. And in his resurrection, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6, 10. So beloved, we need to identify in Christ if we are truly to obey this call to be holy as God is holy. It's the only way we can really fulfill this command. So, um, I'd like to uh, just close in prayer um, to reflect on this. If you'll bow with me. Lord God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he that he's our um, that he's our righteousness. Lord, give us grace to obey your command to be holy as you are holy. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.